Welcome to Repro's Fight Back, a podcast on all things repro. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and each episode I will be taking you to the front lines of the escalating fight over our sexual and reproductive health and rights at home and abroad. Each episode, I will be speaking with leaders who are fighting to protect our reproductive health and rights to ensure that no one's reproductive health depends on where they live. It's time for Repros to fight back. Welcome to this week's episode of Repros Fight Back. Today, we're going to talk about sex education. I'm really excited because this is something I am a little bit secretly passionate about. Um, so helping me dig into this, I am really excited to have Jesse Boyer from the Guttmacher Institute with me today to talk all things sex education. So welcome, Jesse, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Jenny. Really happy to be here since this is um, pretty much a not-so-secret passion <laughs> of mine. I'm happy to dig into sex ed policy. All right. So before we get too far into this, we need to do some basic scene setting so that Everybody is on the same page. We want to make sure that when we say things, people know what they mean. So we want to make sure we do some terminology definition. So what do we mean when we talk about comprehensive sexuality education? Great. So comprehensive sex ed is one of those terms that uh, people bring whatever their preconceived notions uh, and oftentimes their own experience with sex ed to Mm -hmm. what we mean when we say comp sex ed or comprehensive sexuality education. But really in the policy arena, when we're talking about comprehensive sexuality education, we're talking about sequential learning, um, ideally K through 12, um, where young people are building their education and skills related to uh, a whole range of topics that are grounded in science, that are medically accurate and complete, that are age and developmentally and culturally appropriate. And that's on a whole host of um, issues related to sexual health. So it's human development, it's healthy relationships, it's personal safety and communication, as well as pregnancy and reproduction, HIV and other STD prevention, and sexual health and sexual behaviors, including abstinence. And I think what's really critical to remember when we're talking about sex education is that education part, um, that the goal of sex education is to equip young people with the information and skills that they're going to need and that they have the right to, to lead sexually healthy lives across their lifetime. Well, that's not super familiar to me, only in that that is absolutely not the kind of sex education I had. I had this next one, which is abstinence only, which what is what do we mean when we say abstinence only? Yeah, and and unfortunately, you are not alone that um, an abstinence only program or approach or intervention is unfortunately what a lot of us in our general age, if you grew up in the 80s, 90s, early aughts, and today, unfortunately, you're likely to receive um, abstinence-only programs as your sort of fake mode of education. Um, And why abstinence-only programs are so different than sex ed is that the goal is different. Rather than the goal being about educating young people, the goal is about promoting a single course of preventing and avoiding any sexual activity until marriage. Now, um, pretty blatantly, we're also seeing abstinence-only programs really focusing around the concept of preventing poverty as part of the ideological motivation behind the approach. Yeah, mine was very much the, as we like to say, the mean girls variation of sex education. Like, you're going to have sex, here are all these horrible diseases you'll get, and you'll die. You're going to die. Yeah. 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 And unfortunately, that's a pretty common content within abstinence-only programs is that uh, that fear and shame-based as opposed to 
building skills um, and building comfort around one's own sexuality. There are two very different types of programs. So what does the research tell us about sex, comprehensive sex education versus abstinence only? Yeah, well, fortunately, we have decades worth of research looking at um, the different components of these whole range of approaches to adolescent sexual health, everything from randomized controlled trials, looking at evaluation of specific interventions, um, looking at specific content of programs. And the research is pretty clear in that the preponderance of the last two decades worth of research shows that abstinence-only programs, um, and again, those are programs that are emphasizing abstinence, uh, and particularly abstinence outside of marriage, uh, not only are ineffective at their primary goal of young people delaying sex until marriage, but oftentimes can end up actually harming young people because of their fear and stigma and shame-based content. On the other hand, um, there's a whole host of research that shows that Programs that include more components of comprehensive sex ed, so building off of abstinence, including contraception information, building in information about healthy relationships and consent, um, and breaking down uh, gender stereotypes, um, actually end up, when compared to students who participate in abstinence-only programs, these young people are delaying when they have sex for the first time. And when they do end up having sex, they're actually more likely to use contraception or condoms. Um, so therefore, you know, demonstrating that more information means that young people are better equipped to make informed and autonomous decisions about their sexual health. I know after having abstinence, I was definitely not prepared. I, you know, I didn't have the stuff about healthy relationships. And so, you know, there's just so many skills that you didn't get that you might have gotten or would get in a comprehensive sex education uh, setting versus abstinence. Yeah, and I think what oftentimes <coughs> happens, um, uh, uh, unfortunately, in the debate, um, in this sort of false choice between abstinence only versus comprehensive sex ed, is this um, false notion that comprehensive sex ed is about everything but abstinence, when mm -hmm. obviously um, the purpose of that education is to provide information, including abstinence, as a way for young people to make their own informed decisions. Um, and it's unfortunately um, this concept of a one-size-fits-all approach on the abstinence-only uh, proponents' motivations um, that doesn't provide young people with the tools they need, whether they have sex as a young person or if they do choose to wait to have sex until they're older. When you talk about comprehensive sex ed, a lot of people assume abstinence isn't there, but then they also assume that it's just about sex and it misses a lot of the broader conversations that are part of it, whether that's consent or what a healthy relationship looks like, or even stuff with gender-based violence that gets put into some of these programs that doesn't get talked about. You really, you just hear the arguments about sex, sex, sex. Yeah. And um, I think because we as a society bring so much weird stigma um, and prudishness, frankly, um, around sex and sexuality and sexual health, and remembering too that we are likely, many of us now who are engaging both in policy and in society, likely also received abstinence only. So a lot of those messages um, sort of permeate, permeate our own um, ideas about how we talk about sex. But that, and there's nothing wrong about sex ed, including information about sex and sexual right. health and sexual behavior. That obviously is a critical component. But absolutely, when we think about what um, education, and particularly when we have more than 50 million young people 
in public schools in this country, it's such an opportunity to talk about things about how young people are critically analyzing and assessing the messaging messages that they're getting in media about sex, the messages that they're getting online with their peers <laughs> about sex and sexuality and, you know, assumptions. And, and you know, because um, the research here is so compelling, yes, we know overall the benefits of programs that include more topics beyond abstinence, but even things like looking at programs that are specifically working on breaking down gender stereotypes have been demonstrated to show that young men are less likely to be physically violent when they have gone through programs that are very clear in breaking down uh, you know, male-female gender quote-unquote norms. Yeah, and especially when you see abstinence, you definitely see a very focus on a heteronormative frame, and you don't really hear about the, any LGBTQ issues um, that you can hear more about often in comprehensive sex. Absolutely. And I think, um, and I'm glad that you added the often because it's certainly, um, you know, an area where there's yeah. always room for improvement as we are learning more and listening to young people more in terms of what they actually say that they need. But even in looking at how some of the abstinence only programs have um, evolved and claimed to address the fact that they have a long history of denigrating and ostracizing LGBTQ youth. We see that just creating gender-neutral pronouns in programs isn't enough, uh, particularly when you have programs such as Heritage Keepers that specifically instructs teachers to say that marriage is an institute between a man and a woman, um, and that then also uh, continues to perpetuate this idea that women are the ones who, and young girls are the ones who are responsible for controlling young men's sexual appetites. Um, you know, these are the kind of content that we know are, are harmful, not just for young people, but for our society. So we know there's a lot of research. So when we talk about effectiveness, what are we talking about when we talk about how effective each method is? Yeah, efficacy is such um, an interesting concept when we're talking about education, which I think sometimes gets lost in this and why remembering that the goals of sex ed versus the goal of abstinence-only programs are different because the efficacy and outcomes of sex ed are frankly much harder to measure. Um, in fact, I believe that there was an estimate done um, uh, within a federal agency once in terms of trying to figure out how long and how much it would cost to do a randomized controlled trial of a K through 12 comprehensive sex ed um, in a school, right? And we're talking over 20 years. We're talking, I think at the time, the estimate was over $3 billion. And so instead, what we're looking at is sort of the trends of what um, what those outcomes look like. So with programs that do include information beyond abstinence, we see that these programs are more likely to improve um, students' educational outcomes. Um, they're more likely to help young people build healthier relationships, you know, in addition to supporting young people's improved use of contraception and condoms um, and reducing sexual violence and sexual abuse and bullying, while at the same time looking at abstinence-only programs, it's actually a bit easier to talk about efficacy because there is none when we look at their goal of young people delaying in terms, in research terms, sexual initiation, the research just isn't there. That um, consistently, while there may be shorter term, you know, three or six month blips um, <laughs> while young people are participating in these programs, in the long term, abstinence only programs aren't effective at their own goal. And I think we can't forget that 
it's not just that they aren't effective at their own goal. It's that they are harming young people in the process. Um, and I know there's a huge range of what kind of sex education people are getting and where the decisions are made. So what determines what kind of sex education a student gets? So many factors. Um, and, you know, like so many policy uh, decisions, sex ed isn't particularly unique particularly unique in that decisions are made at every level of government. But I think what is particularly unique is that really that uh, the layering effect of the different policy decisions that are making by the teacher in the classroom, by that teacher's principal within the school, by the school district's policy, by the school board's policy, by the State Department of Education's policies and standards, as well as the state legislature, like the laws on the books. And that's even before you get to what's happening at the federal level and where federal funding is going, or in this case, not going, since we still to date have never had dedicated funding for comprehensive sex ed in this country. And even public or private school. I mean, I know, right? Like that really makes a difference. I know I went to a Catholic school, so I definitely had a different version when you get sex ed from a nun versus maybe what the state could have mandated. Absolutely. And so much of the policy discussions are related to to public education, but you're absolutely right that that isn't taking into consideration the um, the experiences of students in private schools and and the growing number of young people who are in charter schools and what the relationship is there in terms of the standards or oftentimes lack of standards for sex ed in charter schools. So we'll break it down and look at kind of the different areas. So what kind of requirements do we see at the state level? So every state is different. Um, there is no standard sex ed statute. There is no standard sex ed standards themselves at the state level. Based upon some of the analysis that my colleagues at Guttmacher have monitored over the years, to date, there are still only 24 states and the District of Columbia that mandate sex education. Um, alarmingly, only 13 of those states require that the instruction be medically accurate. Um, which is a number that continues to astound me in 2018. Mm -hmm. But many states, if, even if they don't have a mandate, often have what we refer to as an if-then law, so that if schools are in fact implementing some kind of sex education program, that there are certain content requirements. Um, and alarm alarmingly, in these if-then states, the most frequent uh, requirement is that these programs stress abstinence. So 27 states uh, require that if there is any quote-unquote sex ed topics being taught in schools, that abstinence must be stressed, um, which is oftentimes a way that we have seen an abstinence-only approach being the primary form of instruction or information or lack of information that's provided. Um, and on the other hand, only 18 states and the District of Columbia require information on contraception. So that, you know, could definitely still see that disparity just within the state laws themselves. So we do a 50-state report card that relies heavily on the amazing data that Guttmacher has. And some of the states that didn't have comprehensive, I always found shocking. And I know that's changed in the last couple of years that states have gotten better. But so you don't necessarily know just because you ha are in a blue state that, yeah, obviously they're mandating comprehensive sex education because that's not necessarily true. Absolutely, because um, so many states actually 
um, who have you know, really robust comprehensive sex ed practices on the ground and in their schools may not actually have statutes that are um, as rigorous in terms of what they're requ- requiring. Um, unfortunately, conversely, um, you know, we've also seen that there are states that may have requirements on the books that are perhaps being loosely implemented um, at the school level. Okay, so that's the state, and it's, again, kind of a hodgepodge. So how is the federal government involved in sex education? So you'd think that because we're talking about education, that the Department of Education might play a role in all of this, and that would make sense. Um, unfortunately, that's not the case. There is um, a, a you know, long-fought um, language that was included in the most recent reauthorization of the elementary and secondary um, Education Act, I believe two years ago, that did allow some flexibility for local school district to choose and to choose to use some of their local block grant funds if they wanted related to some healthy relationship instruction. Okay. But that's about as close as we get within the Department of Education for there to be any kind of leadership, frankly, from the Department of Ed at the federal level for states. On the other hand, because we're talking about adolescent sexual health, um, where we have seen the range of funding and different kinds of programs is through the Department of of Health and Human Services. As I mentioned earlier, um, there is still no dedicated funding for comprehensive sex ed. There's still no dedicated funding for sex education itself. Instead, there are um, two different programs that um, support evidence-based interventions intended to prevent unintended pregnancy and prevent HIV and other STIs among adolescents. Um, These are uh, the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program, which has certainly gotten a lot of coverage in the last couple years, um, sadly, due to attacks from this administration, Um, as well as uh, a program that has gotten a little bit uh, less coverage, the Personal Responsibility Education Program, or PrEP, um, which it primarily awards states resources not only for interventions for pregnancy, HIV, and other STI prevention for adolescents, but also requires programs that include topics related to adulthood preparation. So more of an opportunity for healthy relationship and communication uh, building skills um, beyond just the sexual health focus. Um, And the other program... Yeah, yeah. And um, so it's uh, rather than a program, it's resources that are funded through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC's Division of Adolescent and School Health, which is a mouthful, but DASH, as it's colloquially known um, by many of its recipients across the country. And DASH is really unique, both for the federal government and particularly within CDC, and that this is these are resources that are actually awarded to local school districts, as opposed to local uh, public health departments, really with the idea of helping school districts to make sure that the sexual health instruction that is taking place in the schools is reliant on the most up-to-date science and evidence, is medically accurate and complete, and is encompassing a broad range of sexual health topics beyond just abstinence and contraception. Uh, DASH is one of those... um, those investments that has been so critical to be able um, to help demonstrate to us what young people need in terms of sexual health information, because in addition to the resources that go to school districts, DASH is also where the Youth Risk Behavior Survey lives and other critical survey tools like the school health profiles, critical adolescent and student health survey tools that help 
show us um, what young people are reporting their sexual behaviors to be, um, which comes out every two years. These programs, I know, but they have been kind of under attack by congressional Republicans for quite a while. Yeah, and unfortunately, while it's not necessarily the case at the local and state levels that sex ed is a bipartisan issue, unfortunately, in the United States Congress, that um, is currently the case, that at least under this current Congress, and particularly with this administration, (coughs) we've seen um, particular attacks against the teen pregnancy prevention program. Um, And not only an attack in order to try to eliminate the program entirely, but failing that, we've seen with this administration an effort to completely dismantle its grounding and foundation and evidence and instead use it as another way of um, funneling money toward abstinence-only programs. There haven't been similar attacks from the administration aggressively uh, or publicly on uh, PrEP, but we um, have been hearing and are concerned and want to make sure to monitor that PrEP as a program to states is also being implemented the way it was originally intended, which is to to put equal emphasis on abstinence as well as contraception, as opposed to it being yet again another way for this administration to stress and emphasize an abstinence-only approach onto young people. Um, And then I guess one thing we didn't mention is there are abstinence-only federal programs. Yes, indeed. Um, And uh, in fact, we are now at this point over $2.1 billion that have been wasted on abstinence-only until marriage programs since their inception in the, the 80s and more formally in the 90s. So at this point, we're talking of over 30 years of federal investment for dedicated abstinence-only approaches. Um, there are two programs now that are that have actually been uh, rebranded as sexual risk avoidance uh, programs, yes. um, which um, definitely <clears throat> is synonymous with abstinence-only. Um, these are the same programs that were funded for the past three decades called abstinence education, um, which are those abstinence-only programs. One of these is a $75 million state-based grant program um, that primarily goes to states, um, but was changed this past year um, so that when and if states choose not to receive this abstinence-only state-based grant program, uh, local community-based organizations and faith-based organizations in those states can compete for the leftover funding. Um, Additionally, there is an entirely separate competitive grant funding stream for abstinence-only programs um, that is currently funded at $25 million, but based upon the funding bills that passed out of both the House and the Senate earlier this year, could be increased by as much as 40%. Well, nothing like throwing good money after bad programs. It does seem to be the history when it comes to the federal government's attitude toward adolescent sexual health. You know, and I think one thing that's really worth talking about, you know, we've talked about how comprehensive sex educations have been effective, but the numbers are pretty startling. Like the how fast the teen pregnancy rate has fallen in the U.S. in the last 10 years is pretty astounding. Yeah, and I think um, what often gets so conflated um, because it is such a notable... Uh, stat and is is positive, but positive because it means, and we have research to back this up, that young people are increasing their use of contraception, yeah, which means that young people are 
have the ability to control if and when they want to become parents. So I just want to, you know, caution when we talk about adolescent pregnancy or teen pregnancy, that even in talking about unintended teen pregnancy, that it's really about whether or not the young person has the ability to make that decision for themselves. It's not about the, you know, oftentimes it gets construed as this broad public health victory because the overall rate is down when really it's a victory because young people have autonomous control of their body. Yeah. And I really just see them as interrelated. Like you need the foundation of good comprehensive sex education to know about your options, to know about the birth control out there and to be able to make healthy decisions in a relationship. And you need the access to affordable contraception that you can use and access and have access to youth friendly services that together are responsible for the drop in the teen pregnancy rate. Yeah, and this is where, you know, it's never fun to get into nuance when you're trying to make bold policy and advocacy statements. But I think the nuance is really important here, that when we're talking about the historic decline in the adolescent pregnancy and birth rate in this country, what we know based on the research is that that's driven by increased and improved use of contraception by young people. We don't have the data and the research to draw that direct line to comprehensive sex ed, to abstinence only, to any one single thing. There are many different factors. But what we do know is just by using logic and being rational is that if young people are accessing contraception, and that is driving this decline at this population level rate, that programs that either misconstrue or withhold or give incomplete information about contraception certainly aren't going to help contribute to that continuing decline. Whereas we do have the research from programs that incorporate topics um, that are prevalent in ComSex Ed that do demonstrate that it helps young people learn about and build skills and learn how to access and use contraception. So, um, you know, it's that it's those dotted lines and uh, rep- especially representing a research organization, <laughs> you know, want to be really clear that we, yes. we can't we can't jump to the conclusions. And certainly because we don't have dedicated funding for sex ed and especially because what funding there is for adolescent pregnancy prevention and HIV and STI prevention programs through TPP dash and prep is so limited that we can't draw a a direct line other than to say that we know that it is a critical first step toward helping to continue young people be able to access that information and services. So I know we touched on this a little bit, but what has changed since the Trump-Pence administration took office? One of the things, you know, it's certainly not as if, you know, I mentioned that this is a 30-year trend, unfortunately, at this point of federal wasted investment in abstinence-only programs. I think what's most notable is that, um, you know, and this was um, perhaps a cliche that was used a bit too much early on in the Trump administration, but it's a bit of the fox guarding the hen house in that the, uh, the person and people now who are best positioned to determine the direction of federal investment are themselves uh, lifelong community leaders of the abstinence-only movement. I believe Valerie Huber is a very commonly known name at this point for folks who have been uh, paying attention or seeing some of the headlines around the teen pregnancy prevention program. Valerie is the former head of uh, the National Abstinence Education Association, which 
then became uh, the organization called Ascend. Um, and so we're seeing the political appointees within this administration in the position to determine how to redirect some of the funding that's intended for evidence-based programs, not abstinence-only programs. I think another thing that advocates of comprehensive sex ed are really aware of is that because decisions are so localized when it comes to sex education, is thinking about the long-term effects of this administration and the role that federal funding plays on the decisions that get made at the community level and seeing how communities are having to adapt in order to be able to continue to get any kind of federal funding to be able to offer some kind of service and intervention for young people in their community, that I think there's going to be long-term effects that we really won't fully be able to wrap our head around long after this administration. You know, whether or not we continue to fund abstinence-only programs the you know the the implementation of programs doesn't just change on a dime across this country, right. particularly because we are talking about every program being a bit different in the community um, and different communities within a community where it's being implemented. So, um, you know, yes, it's about an attack on the teen pregnancy prevention program or undermining the personal responsibility education program, but it's also about some of those long-term residual effects as this administration is challenging what evidence and science means um, and trying to redefine the outcomes to suit their own purpose to advance abstinence-only programs. You know, one thing that always is so confusing to me is, you know, really pushing for abstinence-only, it it just, it kind of boggles my mind and that, you know, they say they're doing it to protect their kids and kind of sex shaming and stigma and all this stuff. But to me, it seems so basic. Like, don't you want to empower your kids with the tools to make healthy, informed decisions about their lives? And that's how I see comprehensive sex ed, is giving kids the tools they need to lead healthy, successful lives. The challenging thing is that that is what the vast majority of parents and young people, and yes, because we're talking about policy, likely voters, um, also think. Um, in fact, uh, the most recent national polling um, that was published in 2017 found that um, 89% of likely voters supported sex ed in middle school and an astounding 98% of likely voters supported sex ed in high school. So we aren't talking about unpopular concepts or unpopular policy. We're talking about a very vocal minority driven by ideologically motivated, coercive intent that that abstinence is the only answer for young people. And and again, you know, I think it's important to stress that abstinence is absolutely an important choice for every individual to make for themselves. What we know, though, is that marriage is not a panacea answer. <laughs> um, you know, young peoples and people of all ages don't suddenly understand sex and sexual health and sexuality just because they get married. And, and that this idea that more information breeds more comfort and more ability to make decisions that best suit where we are in our life is so critical to the discussion around sex ed versus, you know, the idea of promoting a one-size-fits-all abstinence-only approach. 
Um, so we talked about what's happening at the state level and what's happening at the federal level. What is happening at the school level? Yeah, and this is where um, we actually do have some really helpful data, um, again, uh, that we are able to uh, to access because of the survey within CDC's Division of Adolescent School Health that tells us that actually only less than 40% of, high, of public high schools in the country are providing all 19 sexual health topics that CDC has identified as critical to ensuring student health. That percentage is alarmingly low-er <laughs> for middle schools at just 14% oh, wow. of middle schools. So even though we know that there are young people who are entering high school who are already sexually active, only 14% of middle schools are providing these 19, we're not talking about a huge number of topics, 19, you know, sort of essential critical sexual health topics. We've, we've seen that um, that number also decline over the years, or rather that percentage decline over, over the last few years, you know, which sort of merges the, the public health and the education policy worlds together as educa- public education is being further and further strapped for resources and time at the local level. We're seeing not just sex ed, but <coughs> health, health education in general bearing the consequence of that. So what can people do to get involved in policies affecting sex education? But I think what what is such a great opportunity when we're talking about sex ed policy and affecting change is that because the decisions around what sex ed looks like in your community is impacted at so many different levels that there's so many uh, opportunities for a person to engage and hopefully engage at many of those levels. So starting locally right in your own backyard, Find out what your local school district policy is related to sex ed and find out whether or not that's actually what's happening in your local schools or not. Um, There's uh, some great resources available through Advocates for Youth and um, Answer and CECUS on um, uh, trying to figure out what those policies look like at the very local level. Also, what's going on with your school board? What's your school board policy related to sex ed? Run for school board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, represent, um, represent your community on your school board, and and let your school board members know that sex education is important to you, um, and important to the young people in your community. At the state level, again, so much about it is finding out what exactly is on the books when it comes to sex ed, and. Unfortunately, that means oftentimes having to look in a few different places because many states will have a sex ed law but have a separate HIV prevention instruction law and have a different consent or child sexual abuse or healthy relationships law. So piecing together what those um, laws and policies are in your own state is a great way to start then getting involved with your local state reps and state senator and letting them know that you care. I think so much of um, what drives this idea that clearly there is an overwhelming majority support for sex ed in this country is being more vocal (laughs) with our representatives that we care about this. Um, And then ultimately at the federal level, um, because so many of the decisions, again, that trickle down at the local level depend on the funding, is make sure that your congressional representatives know that you care about funding for TPP, for PrEP, and that you want those programs to continue with the same integrity and intent as when they were created eight years ago. 
your continued support for increased funding for CDC's uh, school-based student health efforts and survey information that's so critical to help shaping what the policies look like down the road. And then finally, letting our elected representatives know that we're tired of wasting money that we know we don't have on abstinence-only programs that are ineffective at their own goal and harmful for young people. To over $2 billion is too much, and we shouldn't be at this point wasting an additional penny on these programs that we know aren't supporting young people's lifelong sexual health. And um, firmly with my C3 hat on, I can still say that find out what the candidates who are running um, in this cycle, how they feel about sex ed. Find out if they've even thought about sex ed. Go to town halls raise the question, let them know that you care and what you think about sex ed, and then ultimately vote on November 6th. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to talk about being vocal about this, whether it's at a school board or at a town hall, because the antis are. And we know that they're a much smaller group than us, but we need to be just as loud. Yeah. And I think that there is oftentimes, um, understandably, because there's so much going on in individuals' lives, in mm-hmm. individuals' communities, in our country, in the world right now, right, that that not everyone um, has the privilege and ability to make sex ed their number one priority. Right. And oftentimes, I think that there is an assumption that for the most part, we're doing okay. And it really depends on where you grow up and what school you're in and what teacher you have, frankly, since that has such a huge impact on the quality of sex ed or lack of sex ed that you get. Finding out what is happening is such a huge way to then um, help inform you when you do decide or if you decide to be vocal about supporting sex education. Finding out uh, more information about what's happening where you are and what your elected officials um, think and what their positions are in sex ed are so critical because we know that young people don't have access uh, uniformly to this information, that many young people are disproportionately affected by the lack of information and education um, that they aren't able to get. Um, And that ultimately, whether it's the science and evidence and their research behind how sex education fulfills their need for information and access, ultimately, it's also their right. It's the right of every individual and certainly and especially the right of young people to be given the information, education, and skills that they're going to need to lead healthy sexual lives. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Happy to, again, happy to, um, to have a chance to dive into some of the challenging but exciting world of sex ed policy in this country. Great. Thanks for listening, everyone. For more information, including show notes from this episode and previous episodes, please visit our website at reprosfightback.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Repros Fight Back. If you like our show, please help others find it by sharing it with your friends and subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.